All right, all right, thank you. While you're being seated, you probably already have one thumb or place marked in the book of Ruth where we have been for the past several weeks, and we're going to continue there today. Uh, last Sunday, we left our heroine. Is that right? How do you say female hero? Say it. See, when I said heroin, it just sounds to me like an illicit drug, does it not? Isn't it pronounced the same way? Huh? <laughs> oh, yeah? Is it, is, is it spelled the same way is what I want to know. For you, Scott, it's not? Okay. Say what now? There's a knee at the end. See, I'm not an expert in heroin at all, so I don't know. Some of y'all know too much about it. <laughs> well, are we talking about the female hero or the drug? Uh, we're talking about the female hero of our story today. My goodness, I have already got us way off track. We left our female hero last week in the field of Boaz as she was gleaning. She and her mother-in-law have just returned from the land of Moab. They are destitute. They are penniless. And they are counting upon the grace of others at this time for survival and for sustenance. And she finds herself in the field of Boaz gleaning barley. And you know that a gleaner is different from a harvester. A harvester is one who is there to take the grain and a gleaner comes behind the harvester and basically picks up what they have dropped. So that's what she is doing. She is in the field of Boaz gleaning so that she and her mother-in-law will have something to eat. She had a brief encounter with the owner who was Boaz, and we pick up in verse number 8 as Boaz addresses her personally. So verse number 8 of Ruth chapter 2 says this, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May Yahweh reward your work and your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Well, we have heard all of our life that we ought to be helpful. We ought to help folk who are in need. Indeed, the passage of Scripture that Colin read for us this morning tells us if we are not helpful then there's something wrong spiritually with us, that our religion or our spirituality, the Bible says, is worthless. So we're taught what we ought to do. We ought to help people. But I don't know if we have ever been taught how we ought to help people. 
Because you see, there is a type of help that hinders and there's a type of help that hurts. And it's interesting that we find ourselves in this passage on this topic before we send a mission team, our very first mission team, to a cross-cultural mission field to minister among the Quilombolas of Brazil. Because one of the first things that missionaries have to learn is exactly this, how to help without hurting. Because you see, we normally as United States citizens have a default mode of helping that comes pre-programmed in our nature that will normally end up hurting more than it will help. It might bring some immediate comfort and immediate relief, but down the road it's going to spoil the pudding and it's going to cause a lot of problems for us. As a matter of fact, the MO of most short-term mission teams is to go somewhere and have something that they give away, throw away a lot of money, and then stand up in a group of people who are significantly down the socioeconomic ladder from this American team, and then they will give an evangelistic appeal. Well, guess what the people are going to naturally do? Every one of them is going to give some type of indication they responded appropriately to the gospel message because they're not necessarily under conviction or wanting to please the Lord, but they're wanting to please this rich American team so that they will continue to come back and throw around more financial resources. So you can see how sometimes helping does actually hurt rather than help. So let's look at this subject today in these verses that we have before us because they have a lot to say about help that does not hurt. So here we go. Let's put it under two broad umbrellas. The first one is this. Helping correctly does not hurt in the first place those who are helped. Those who are helped. You know, again, we can unintentionally try to help someone but help them in the wrong way and it'll end up hurting them. But Boaz here, as he ministers to Ruth, this destitute widow who has already assumed responsibility for her aged mother-in-law, as he helps her, he helps us understand how it is that we can better help those whom we are called to help. So here we go. Notice what it is that Boaz did. Or, or let me say it like this first. Notice what Boaz did not do. First thing that Boaz did not do was he did not give a handout. And why did Boaz not do that? Well, we've already met him last week. We know that he was a mighty man of valor. He's spiritual. He's wise. And he knows some things about helping people, quite honestly, that you and I need to know. So as he looks at this destitute widow who is gleaning in one of his fields and as he engages her, he did not give her a handout. Now, what would have been your temptation? Be honest. Our temptation, every one of us as Americans, because here's our default mode of help. Let's throw money at it. He didn't do that. He didn't give her anything. As a matter of fact, well, just check out. Go on through the story with me. Notice why he did not give her a handout. I think 
because he recognized something in her. He recognized two character qualities that he did not want to mess up. And here's what a handout will do. A hand up will mess up these two character qualities. Mark my word. Almost 100% of the time. Here's something cool. Boaz had only met this woman for a little while. How did he recognize these two character qualities in her? Mark it down. People of character always recognize character when they see it. You've heard all your life. It takes one to know one. Well, there is some truth to that. It takes a person of character to recognize character hidden deeply under the outward appearance of another person. So Boaz recognizes two character qualities that he didn't want to mess up. I'm going to talk about them a little bit. He realized, number one, that if he gave Ruth a handout, that handouts normally distort dignity. Dignity. Dignity is character quality number one that Boaz, this man of character, recognizes in Ruth, this woman of character. And he knew that if he just starts doling out and giving things to her freely, he is going to distort this character quality of dignity. Now, what is dignity, you may ask? Well, I know it comes to us through uh, Latin and through the Romance languages and finds itself in Portuguese as the word jiginu, which we translate as worthy. Worthy. So when somebody is dignified, here's what it means. If they are somebody who is worthy of, number one, self-respect, and number two, the respect of others. That's someone who has dignity. That's someone who is dignified. And get this, you don't have to have a lot of money to be a person of dignity. Did you know that? You know, here Ruth was, she was destitute, penniless. She was reduced to gleaning because of circumstances in her life. But yet Boaz still recognized that she was a dignified human being. And can I say this to you? By virtue of the fact that every person is created in the image of God ought to mean that you are dignified. So we ought to act like dignified people rather than people with no cooth and people with no morals and people with no moral compass and all of those types of things. But everybody knows some folk that are not dignified. But here Boaz recognizes that she is somebody who is dignified. Now let me tell you what a person with, who, is, who has dignity has. They have a lot of self-respect. Now, if you're not careful, self-respect can turn into pride, which is bad. But here's what dignity says. And how many times have I heard it recently? Look here, we're not looking for a handout. We're looking for a hand up. There's a difference in that. Somebody who has dignity will say that. Somebody who has no dignity says just, Gimme, 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 gimme. My name ain't Jimmy, but I'm taking what you gimme. Somebody who has dignity will say, No, I, I don't want your sympathy. I don't want your charity. I just need a little help at this moment in my life. Not a hand out, but a hand up. Hey, let me ask you a question. Some of the things that you have in your life, which are you most satisfied with? Those whom somebody just gave you freely or the ones that you have worked hard for? And I hear folks say this a lot of times, and it's a little bit of dignity coming out. Folks saying, look, 
we have worked for everything we've got. That's dignity. And what they're saying is, I'm fulfilled in the fact that God has given me the ability to work and He's blessed our work and this is what we have because of it. Oh, hear me. I have some friends. I have some good friends in ministry that colleges and universities have given them, just given them, an honorary doctorate. Oh, they didn't go to a doctoral seminar. They never wrote a dissertation. They never did. And they just gave them an honorary doctorate. Now hear me. There's nothing wrong with this. But I can tell you right now that they aren't nearly as fulfilled with their honorary doctorate as somebody is who put seven years of blood, sweat, and tears and hard work into that thing. Are you following me? So Boaz knew that if he just gave her something, he would distort her dignity. So number next, what else did Boaz recognize in her life? He noticed the character quality of dignity, but Boaz did not give her a handout because he knew that handouts normally destroy initiative. They destroy initiative. Here was a woman, didn't nobody have to crack a whip on her to get her to get out at daylight in the morning and go glean in a field so she'd have something to eat? She wasn't around standing in a line waiting for somebody to give her something. She had enough initiative. That's get up and go. She was a self-starter. And she had initiative. And she got up and she went out there and she did it. Hey, this is how he helped her without hurting. He didn't give her a handout, but he helped her in her work. And can I say this to you guys? Uh, Man, work is something that is ordained of God Almighty. As a matter of fact, hear me. In the Bible, work is ordained before marriage. That's how much God thinks of it. Go with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse number 15 sometime when you get a moment and notice that before He even created a woman for there to be marriage, God put Adam in the garden and He said, Now, son, I want you to work it and I want you to take care of it because there's something dignified about a hard day's work. And listen, man, I'm telling you, because it's a part of God's plan for human beings, we are made in His image. He's a God who works. Therefore, we as His creation ought to be people who work. There is almost no excuse for laziness. And laziness is both the cause and the effect of emotional, spiritual, social, psychological, every type of problem you can imagine. And there is no reason for it. But handouts, listen to me, listen to me, would you please? By the way, Richie Allen for president 2024, huh? Hear me. God hasn't designed human beings to lay around on a couch all day and play video games. If we'd get our kids off the couch and get them in the field chopping cotton, by golly, there wouldn't be as many school shootings as we're having today. Huh? I mean, come on, folk. This is not rocket science. God didn't design human beings to stand around and live off of the welfare of the United States government. No longer we're not dignified anymore. No longer our society is dissolving around us because we are becoming worthless, lazy, undignified creations of God who refuse to put in a hard day's work for anything. We've got the mentality that it ought to be given to us. You see, that's the problem with handouts. Where did it come from? Well, our government started this good nonsense. 
uh, 75 or 80 years ago. And I, now I don't want to get into history with you nor politics, but I'm just telling you that type of help doesn't hurt. I mean, that type of help doesn't help. It hurts because it destroys dignity and it erases initiative. I mean, the more you give, it's exactly right. I'm glad I'm not preaching this message alone today. <laughs> So look, Boaz teaches us how to help folk. And, and the first thing we learn from Boaz is that he did not give a handout. What's the second thing he did? Well, he recognized these two characteristics, so he developed these two character qualities in her. Everything he did was aimed at bringing these two character qualities to full fruition so that she blossomed like a flower. Now... Well, let me go on. We're going to get to it. I want to get ahead of myself. Notice how he developed dignity and initiative in her life. Hey, anybody know somebody that needs some help? I mean, everybody does, don't they? Don't you? you know, here's how you do it right here. Watch old Boaz. I mean, we know what we're supposed to do. We just don't know how we're supposed to do it. So here's Boaz teaching us how to help people. Notice the first thing he did. The first thing he did was he addressed her intimately. Check out this. Now notice what Boaz said. Never met her before, but recognized something in her. Indeed, God had given her favor, she says over and over again, in his sight. So notice what's going on in, in verse number 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my poor little old worthless Moabite girl who's gleaning in my field who isn't worthy of my time nor my breath to address. You ever had anybody speak to you? And you, you can read through the lines, that's what they were saying. Well, that's not what he does. Notice how he addresses her intimately. He says, listen carefully, my daughter. Now what you reckon that did to her? As soon as she heard him say, listen carefully, my daughter. Is there any more tender way to address somebody is there any more affectionate relationship that exists between a loving father and a daughter? I don't know, because all I ever had was boys. <laughs> Some of you guys who have daughters tell me. I mean, you know, I understand when you have a daughter that, man, Heather tells me, Heather tells me that's what's wrong with me today. <laughs> Is that if I'd had a daughter, <laughs> I'd be a whole lot more compassionate, merciful, tender, all right. <laughs> Cliff, you saying that's not sissy qualities, huh? Is that what girls do to you? Yeah, that, I know what else they do to you. Come wedding time, they break you, don't they? <laughs> no, it don't have to be wedding time. It's just every day. I mean, buying dresses and shoes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So anyway, where was I? What book was I preaching from? <laughs> he addressed her as daughter. Here's something else that Heather says to me all the time. She says, hey, it's not what you say, it's... Come on. It's how you say it. And here he is addressing her in terms of tender... Look, she's scared death. She's a foreigner. She's an outsider. She's in his field gleaning. And yet this man of, 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 of valor and, and respect and honor, the owner of this field comes up and calls her daughter. What you reckon that did for Ruth? See, he's teaching us how to help somebody. So number one, it's 
how we talk to them. He addressed her intimately. Notice what else he did. Second thing in verse 8b is he established boundaries. Notice in verse 8b. He said, do not go glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. So what did he do here? Well, he established for her boundaries. Hey, in those days, there weren't fence rows in those fields. And there was no way she could know where his field started and maybe his brother's field, or where his stopped and his brother's field started. So what does he do? He kind of helps her establish some guidelines, some boundaries. Hey, if, if you will stay in this lane, then we're going to be okay. Don't you go on to that next field. I don't have any say-so over there. You stay right here. Now, hey, can I say to you that's ultimately important for somebody who's being helped and for a helper, somebody who's helping. There have got to be clearly established boundaries. You've got to know where you can go. You've got to know what you can do. And you've got to know where you can't go and what you can't do. And can I say sometimes that, that that's one thing that folk just have problems with? They just have problems with it. I mean, some folk don't understand that there are boundaries in life. And they're, they're, you know, those lines, basically, you've got to respect those lines. And if you don't respect those lines, you short-circuit the process of being helped. And you can't be helped if you don't recognize those established boundaries. So here Boaz was for her. He clearly delineated and he marked out and he established boundaries for Ruth. Hey, we all need help. Huh? We all need help. <laughs> hey, we're all needy. That's why we're here today, huh? So if we're going to be helped, then we've got to recognize some boundaries. And if we're going to help somebody, then we've got to help establish those boundaries for them. Number next, how did he help her? Well, he addressed her intimately. He established boundaries. And then in verse number 8c, he included her in the group. In what group? In his group of, of servants and maids. She's already got a promotion. She showed up there as a gleaner, as a destitute Moabitess, and now she's already included in the group of the Israelite reapers and servants and maidservants. Check out what he says here in verse 8c. He says, Do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Now let me show you the only other place that verb in Hebrew is used in this book. Check it out. Look with me in, uh, in verse number 14 of chapter 1. They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now what verb do you think is the exact same one that Boaz used when he told her to stay with the maids? You got it. So see, what he was communicating to her is this. You are now a part of the group. See what I'm saying? It's almost one of those hugging type things. You stay with them because no longer do I look at you as a Moabitess foreigner. Now I'm looking at you as one of us. Hey, you know what that communicated to her? That by golly, she was accepted. You know, one of the, one of the three or four things that psychologists tell us today that 
human beings need in order to develop responsible and to be dignified people? One of them is they need, they need to know they're loved. Another one is they need to have boundaries. Hey, listen to me, moms and dads. Your kids need to have boundaries. You're not called to be their friends. You're called to be their parents and to establish some boundaries for them. Huh? And let them know that no, coloring outside the lines is not going to work here. That's what they need. They need love. They need to be addressed intimately. They need established boundaries. But here he included her in the group. You know what that means? That means they're accepted. They're accepted. Hey, can I be honest with you? Do you know why I'm here today? Heather and I came back from the mission field in 2015 because we'd been invited to do a little teaching in the mission department at the Babs College of Florida. So we came home and we were, man, we were eager to do that and we thought we'd just slide right back into church life like we left off Jacob before we left to go to the mission field. And son, we found out we couldn't, no longer, no longer could we fit, but guess what? Churches didn't want us to fit. I mean, it was like, you know what I called myself last week. I'm not going to do it again because too many of you went, <gasps> But I was in the church again, the proverbial, <laughs> in the punch bowl. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And they didn't want it. We were shunned. You can ask my wife. I'm not making this up. We were shunned in Southern Baptist churches in the Panhandle and Dothan, Alabama, all around. We, they just didn't want us. And one of my students in a mission class one day says, Dr. Allen, you ought to come to a, a small church plant that's just getting off the ground in Bonifay, Florida. And I thought, uh uh-uh. I don't want to have a part of that. So we were going and hiding out every Sunday at a Presbyterian church in Dothan. You know you're desperate when you hang out with the Presbyterians, huh? <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. But we went up there because, you know what, when we walked in the door, there were several folk that said, Hey, I've never seen you here before. Are y'all new? I said, Yes, well, I do happen to be. This is our very first day. We're nervous as we can possibly be. Don't you see the perspiration under my arms? What y'all, we don't know what y'all going to do here. Y'all going to sacrifice pigs or what? <laughs> going to be snake handling? <laughs> so these two guys, one of them was a Delta pilot, and, man, we just loved him. He said, Man, I'm, but I'm sorry. They're transferring me. i got to move to Atlanta. So boom, there, he, there went that guy. Well, the only guy who'd accepted us, you know, and kind of took us in. So, you know, we rocked alone trying to hide out, but we're just not hideout type of people. We, we got to be, God called us to be involved. Huh? Just like he did you. That's what he does. He includes you in the family. And it, those who he includes, it don't mean just show up every now and then and sit and look. But he says, come and, and you, you stick here with my folk. We couldn't find anybody to stick with. So one Sunday morning we got out and there was nowhere to go. And I said, all right, let's go to Bonifay and see what's going on. So we walk in this little church down here on Waukesha. How many of you were there? Look at there. What is that of us here today? About one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. I walk in that little church on Waukesha. And before I get the door closed behind me, there's about 15 or 20 students of mine from BCF saying, Dr. Allen, what are you doing here? Oh, we're so glad to see you. They were hugging on us and loving on us. And I just kind of felt, my gosh, we finally found somewhere that we're accepted. That's why I'm here. You know why? I'm here because Grace Church accepted me. Now watch me. 
I'm not a newbie when it comes to church work. You know what I'm saying? I mean, look how old I am. You can tell I've been around a block a time or two. I mean, i got several degrees in this stuff. Not only have I pastored here, but we've done mission work around the world. I'm a seasoned veteran at church work. You hear me? And if acceptance is that important for me as a veteran, how important is it for that person who walks in here the very first time? Huh? That's why every one of us ought to be a Boaz who can see that person who's here for the first time has an eye for guest. Because I can tell you, it doesn't matter how good the music is. It doesn't matter how pitiful the preaching is. <laughs> if they're accepted, they're going to come back. If folk are looking for acceptance. And that's what Boaz did. How did he help Ruth? He accepted her. He included her in the group. Are y'all still with me? Here we go. Notice what else he did. Not only did he include her in the group, verse 8, uh, 8c, but in verse 9, he instituted a policy. Check this out. Boaz was way ahead of his days. He could have fit right in to the workplace, the marketplace in the United States of America today. Look what he did in verse number 9. I have commanded the servants. That word is, I have commanded the male servants not to touch you. Do you know what policy he instituted? He just instituted an anti-sexual harassment policy right there in the barley field. He did. That's, what, that's what's going on here. I mean, let's just be honest. Ruth was a looker. And she was a Moabitess. So these Israelite, to these Israelite servants, she was a fine target. And who's going to say anything to them? I mean, they're out there in the barley field. Do whatever they want to with, with this foreign, good-looking maidservant. And Boaz recognizes that. He, uh, look, he knows, he knows his men, don't he? Huh? Who doesn't know? <laughs> Who doesn't know what men are thinking? So Boaz just sets them down and says, I'm going to tell you boys something. Y'all see this girl? Don't touch her or I'll break your fingers off and take a baseball bat and shatter your kneecaps. <laughs> That's the Richie translation of it. <laughs> hey, listen to me, ladies. You have a right to go to work without being harassed sexually. Huh? And that's what Boaz recognized years and years before his time. So how did he help her? He didn't give her a handout, but he helped develop these two qualities in her life. Dignity and initiative. So check out what else he did. Not only did he institute a policy, but he ensured her success. Check out verse 9c. Here's what he said. Uh, when you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Or it, literally it's past what the servants have drawn. Now here's what's going on. There was a well just outside of Bethlehem. Remember, Boaz just came back from Bethlehem last week. His field's just outside of Bethlehem. There's no well in the field, so the workers have to bring water with them every day if they're going to drink it. And normally, it's the lady's job to draw water. But here, it was the men who drew the water. And now, here, Boaz is, gives this maiden the right to drink water that the men have drawn. Son, he just inverted social standing right there. He really did. I mean, this stuff was, uh, this stuff was unheard of in that day. No, no, that woman can drink it if she's drawn it. And we'll drink it if she's drawn it, but she ain't drinking what I'm drawn. I mean, that was just the way it worked culturally back in that day. But here's how he ensured her success in gleaning. 
when she's out there working in that hot sun gleaning barley, the only way she could get water was to leave the field and go all the way back to Bethlehem and get a drink and then come back. You know how much time she would lose? There's no way she could get enough barley to be successful. Boaz recognizes that and he says, I want to maximize your time. I want to help make you fruitful. So he says, you see that water hanging over there in that tree? My men drew this morning. When you're thirsty, you go right over there and drink. You come right back and get to work. Son, how, how effective did that make her? She was much more effective in time management and in her work. And look, here's what we're supposed to do. This is how you help somebody by making them be fruitful and effective. You know, we just have a standing policy at our mission organization with missionaries who are coming on board. I mean, we have criteria and we have levels and we have all kind of stuff that they've got to meet because here's what our board will not do. Our board will not send a vocational missionary into a scenario in which we do not have a high degree of confidence that they're going to be successful in it. We're not going to send somebody into something that we're, we think they're going to go into it and fail. We're not in the business of setting people up for failure. And I, I think sometimes that's what we do inadvertently. As, as a church and as believers, we put folk in situations that they're not suited for that just doesn't fit them and we expect them somehow or another to miraculously, against all odds, be fruitful and successful in that. And here's what we're to do for to help people. We've got to put them in a position, in a place, where we know we can help them be successful. And that's what Boaz did. He helped Ruth be successful. I've got to run. What else did he do? Not only did he ensure her success, and, and how else did he do that? He told his servants, hey, drop a little extra for her. Huh? Leave a little, throw a little bit of my barley out on the ground for her. Let, let's make sure she is successful. What is he doing? He's guarding her dignity and he's preserving her initiative. Because she's still working. Check it out. Number next. Not only did he ensure her success, but he also eliminated her fears. Look at verse number 13. Here's, here's what she said. She said, for you have comforted me and indeed spoken kindly to your maidservant. Do you see that phrase, have spoken kindly? You may want to underline it because in the original, here's what it says in Hebrew. It says, you have spoken to my heart. You have spoken to my heart. He, didn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't happy or content just to stay superficial. He spoke to the most basic need that she had. Heart being the seat of emotions, he spoke and calmed her emotionally. He eliminated her fears. Because what was her fear? I mean, here she was, assumed responsibility for her, for her, for her mother-in-law who couldn't work. She was so old. And now Ruth is probably scared to death. They're going to starve to death and be bankrupt and destitute and die alone in a corner somewhere. And here's what she says to Boaz. You have spoken to my heart. Man, when you can eliminate somebody's fear, you go a long way in preserving dignity and initiative and ensuring their success. Number next, not only did he eliminate her fears, but he also interceded on her behalf. Look at verse number 12. 
I mean, it, it, you know, we always want, uh, what, what do you do? Do you, do you help tangibly or do you pray? Yes. <laughs> Both. You help without hurting and you also pray that God goes beyond and does what you can't. And look how he prayed for her. May Yahweh reward your work. Can I stop right there? The writer of the Hebrews says, God is not unjust that he should forget your deeds of righteousness. And you know what? Check out the next phrase. L look at what else uh, he said in, in, in verse number 12. May Yahweh reward your work. God is going to pay her back. That's what he's playing to God to pay her back. Now check it out. And your wages be full from Yahweh. That's the covenant-keeping God of Israel. The God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. No, no that's not. That, here's the phrase I was looking for. All that you have done for your mother-in-law, verse 11, after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. You know, you just be faithful. And you do what God would have you to do. And it's going to be heard about. Look, people are going to hear about it. Are they not? Boaz said, I've heard about this. People talk. Did you know that? People just have a tendency to talk. But here they were. There was something good going around the grapevine, and it was about how Ruth had taken care of her mother-in-law. But guess who else not only heard it but saw it? Yahweh. God Almighty. And look, it doesn't matter who sees it as long as God does. And I think most of what we do, it only matters if He sees. And God saw it, and here's what He does. He intercedes for her. He says, may the covenant-keeping God of Israel reward you and pay you in full for what you have done. So here he prays for her. Hey, man, when you're helping somebody, it does them good for them to hear you pray for them. And here Ruth heard this man of influence, this mighty man of valor, pray for her. Check out number next. I've got to hurry. Not only did he intercede on her behalf, but he encouraged her spiritually. Now, this right here gets me. Because this is one of the most delicate it's one of the most picturesque descriptions of God in all of the Bible. And notice who it was that said it. It was Boaz, this man of character. How did he know to describe God like that? There's only one way you know God this way, Cliff, is if you've experienced Him this way. And notice what he says. Check this out in verse number 12. He talks about the God of Israel, comma, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Now, if I was in the Quilombola village and we were doing this passage, I'd have to tell them this because they think very concrete. I said, the Bible's not teaching us that God's a bird. <laughs> it's not what he's, that's not what Boaz saying. God is not a bird. He's given us a description and he's describing God for us. And he's describing him as a mother turkey hen. And you know, turkeys have it hard. Did you know that? They just do. Baby turkeys, when they hatch out, they're like this. They're just a ball of fuzz. And everything in the woods has young turkey breast on their menu for dinner. Everything. Are you with me? From fire ants to red-tailed hawks to coyotes, bobcats, everything has turkey on their menu. It's a delicacy for everybody in the woods. So a turkey has a hard time surviving. Biologists tell us that if all the turkeys that hatch in one season would grow up to be mature, mature birds, we would be overrun. They would be a nuisance. And we'd have turkeys walking down Main Street right here in Bonifay if all of them survived. 
So it is part of God's mercy that some of them get eight. But here's how they survive. As a matter of fact, this past week, it's turkey hatching season right now. And I'm kind of a turkey mother hen. I like to protect them because I like to raise them up big so I can blow their heads off. <laughs> it's kind of a contradiction, isn't it? <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> anyway, last week at my house, we just had some hatch out. Heather and I rescued a, 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 a nest. We got some, some that hatched out and we're raising them. We protected them and all this kind of stuff. But I told Heather, I said, all the turkeys that are in the woods today, probably most of them are going to be wiped out on this one day. You know what happened last Wednesday? I don't know about in Bonifay, Florida, but in Troy, Alabama, it rained all day. We got about three inches in one day. And a baby turkey that's nothing but a ball of fuzz, when it gets wet, it gets cold. And when they can't regulate their body temperature, they're done. So on a deluge, anytime you have a wet spring, it's going to be detrimental to the turkey hatch and the population. The only way those little turkeys survive is this. They run to their mama and she puts her wings out like this and sets down on them. And she all day long will funnel water off those little turkeys. And that's the image that Boaz has given us of God. Hey, do you know everything in the world is against you? Did you know that? Everything spiritually is against you. But if God is for you, who can be against you? And here's what you do. When the world's closing in on you and everything's against you, you run to God and you seek refuge under His wing. And it can be raining cats and dogs and you're not going to get a drop on you. The wolf can be howling at the door and as long as you're under the wings of Yahweh, ain't nothing going to happen to you. Look, old Boaz teaches us how to help somebody, doesn't, doesn't he? How to help is important. How to help. Helping correctly does not hurt those who are helped. It does not. I, I, just the other day I was reading a mission magazine and here's what the guy said. The guy said, any mission strategy that goes and does for people rather than equipping people to do for themselves robs people of their God-given dignity. And he's right. So Boaz teaches us how to help people and at the same time preserve their dignity and preserve their initiative. So helping correctly does not hurt those who are helped. But number two and finally, and I'm out of here, helping correctly does not hurt the helper, the one who is given the help. Now, let me, you might think, now that sounds funny, but let me just ask you a question. How many of you have helped somebody more than you even care to call to remembrance. You've helped them, helped them, helped them, helped them. And they turn around and put a knife in your back. Anybody had that experience? Raise your hand if you had that experience. Huh? It seems that those you helped... That's right, April. Raise both hands and a leg. It seems sometimes that those we help the most are the ones who turn around and become resentful of us, strike out at us, and ultimately injure us the the, the, the most deeply. And you know why that may be? It may be because we help them improperly. And not knowing it, but in the way we help them, we kind of rob them of dignity and we kind of destroy their initiative and then it comes back to bite us. So helping correctly is not only important for the ones that we're helping, but it's important for those who are doing the, who are giving the help. So check out old Boaz. How, how come this didn't hurt him? 
Well, because here's what he became. Two things. Stay with me and I'm done. The first thing he, came, he became when he was helping, when he was helping Ruth is that he became the wings of God. Stop and think about it. He says, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to, t- to seek refuge. Now, who was it that God was using literally as his wings to protect this old girl and ensure her success? It was Boaz. You know, it's like the little boy said to his mama one night that was scared of the dark, and she, he, was, she, he was crying, and she went into his room and said, Son, what's the matter? He said, Mama, I'm, I'm just scared to death. She said, Son, you don't have to be afraid. Jesus is here with you. And he said, Mama, I know Jesus is here, but I just need somebody with flesh and bone. You get it? Somebody you can touch. And that's what Boaz became. He became the wings, the tangible representation of the protection of Almighty God. Now, isn't that what you want to be this week as you're sent out? Be the wings of God for somebody. But check out number next, and I'm done. Don't check out on me, though, because I want to explain this one to you, all right? Not only did he become the wings of God, and look, that... That's a pretty cool thing. (laughs) That that won't hurt you. Are you with me? That won't hurt you this week to be the wings of God. But number two, he became the lender of God. The lender of God. Now, Proverbs 19, 17 says this. says, He who is gracious or helpful to the poor lends to God. That's a financial term. That's like me pulling out $5 and giving it to Jamie. I just lended you $5. Now, you know Jamie. Is Jamie going to repay me that $5? You better believe he's going to pay. And look, depending on how bad of a bind he was in when I loaned him $5, he's liable to turn around and give me 10 back, huh? That's what the Proverbs talking about. Those who are gracious to the poor lend to God. And get this. The Bible indicates God is the debtor to no man. So son, when you lend to God, you just guess what he's going to do. He's going to pay you back a heck of a lot more than the $5 that you gave somebody. Watch me, Grace Church. You can afford to lend to God this week by being the wings of God and helping somebody. You can. What do you think old Boaz Harvest was that year because he gave so generously to Ruth? I bet you when he got to doing up his tally sheets, he said, my gosh, we've harvested more bushels to to the wheat per acre this year than we ever have. What's going on? I can tell you what happened. Old Boaz made a little loan in that harvest season. And he made a loan to God because he was gracious to the poor. God is a debtor to no man. And he will repay. Hey, do you need help? This is a good passage for you. Hey, are you willing to help folk? This is a good passage for you. In Jesus' name, let's do it right. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It constantly amazes me how it speaks to situations in which we are living today. And that's because it is eternal. It declares about itself, the grass shall wither and the flower will fade, but the word of God stands forever. 
So God, we thank you for what it does in our life. It builds us up. It gives us an inheritance among all those who are sanctified because we do not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I pray for those who are here today that need to feel acceptance and God first need to feel sense your acceptance and they can do that by repenting and placing their faith in Jesus Christ who died for them on Calvary's cross to be accepted by God, accepted in the beloved. It's the greatest thing that can happen to an individual. I also pray for those who need just the acceptance of a family or a church as I have and we all do. And God may Grace Church be the wings of God for them. May this be the place that ensures their success and helps them be the people whom God has called them to be and reach the heights to which God has directed them. So God, whatever you've said today, may we respond in faith and may you be blessed. And we pray it in Jesus' name. As our worship team is leading us in a closing song, I'm going to ask Brother John Wilson. He's right here. Dr. Wilson, you'll be up here. Colin Dollar, you'll be up here. God said something to you today, to, to you today and you just need to pray with somebody. I'd like somebody to pray with you as Boaz did for Ruth. These guys are here. Whatever God has done in your life today, let's act on it and be responsible.